0: The scripture reading from today is from Acts chapters 11 and 13. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they have fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Amen. Wonderful to be with you here this morning, great to see you all,
1: Um, especially for what we're looking at today, because if you know the book of Acts at all, you know that there were dozens of churches that were started in the first decades after Christianity began, but only a small handful of those churches get talked about in the book of Acts, and of that small handful, there's only one where Luke takes us under the hood, so to speak, where we get to see what it means to be a New Testament church, and that's right here in a church in a city in modern-day Turkey called Antioch, and this church was so remarkable That in the end, as we read, that in this church, this is where people were first called Christians or little Christ. See, until then, Christians had been known as followers of the way. But here, it all changed. What what was it about them that made people stand up and say, you all look so much like this Jesus you preach. We can't help but call you by his name. What are the marks, I want to ask? What are the marks of a church that produce that kind of person? Let's take a look at the church in Antioch and see today five marks of a church that produced little Christ. Number one, there's an impossibility. Two, there's diversity. Three, spirituality. Four, generosity. And five, A mystery and I'll be quick about the first four spend most of my time on the fifth and of course if you're here regularly you're rolling around in shock right now thinking is he really doing this he always does three he's not even just doing three there's he's blowing way past it four even five you know can he do that you know it's gonna be okay everybody we're going off road today here we go number one there's an impossibility what do I mean I mean the Christian church was founded on something so utterly unique, something so impossible, that that impossibility distinguishes it from every other faith system in the world. What is it? Well, in this passage, it's referred to alternatively as the Word, on one hand, or the good news about the Lord Jesus. But you actually get an explanation of it in the chapter right before this in chapter 10 and of course all throughout the book and about what the word about what the good news is and peter puts it like this chapter 10 peter said we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the jews and in jerusalem they killed him by hanging him on a cross but what god raised him from the dead on the third day see the focus of apostolic preaching whether it's peter Or Paul or Philip or anyone else was always centered around the resurrection. That's the impossibility. The resurrection was and is the thing any true church of Jesus will be centered on. And that message of the resurrection was at the heart of every New Testament church in Acts. And because it's that important, I want to look at how it was preached, how it was handled, how it was seen. Put it like this, the resurrection was preached as both fact and fulfillment. Both fact and fulfillment. First, the resurrection was preached as fact. And you can see that from where Peter and the other apostles are always saying stuff like you see there in in chapter 10, they're always saying, we are what? Witnesses, we're witnesses of this very thing. They're, they're always saying, "We saw it." You know, it's not fake news, so to speak. It's not alternative facts. Right now, the resurrection's a real thing. We really saw y'all Jesus alive after he really died. See, the early church did not see the resurrection as a nice symbol. A nice symbol like, you know, uh, you know, no matter what happens, the sun will rise tomorrow. That's what it means. Or no, there's always another fish in the sea. Or, you know, hope springs eternal. That's what the resurrection means. No, they preach the resurrection as a hard, bare, incredibly inconvenient truth. In fact, think about the Apostle Paul. Christianity's Ultimate critic, right? He hated Christianity, was offended by it. But when he personally encountered the risen Jesus, everything changed in his life. Everything had to change. Why? Because he encountered a fact. And most of the time when I talk to people about, you know, why they reject or don't want Christianity or the Christian faith will usually give me one of two reasons. They'll say either on one hand, well, I just don't like the lives of Christians. Or on the other hand, they'll say, I just don't like Christianity in general. And I'll usually ask them this. I'll say, well, what does that have to do with the fact that Jesus Christ died for you and was raised from the dead? See, If you're here today, you're skeptical of the resurrection somehow. Let me ask you, what kind of evidence would you need to believe that it actually happened? Let me just submit to you that these Jewish people got exactly that and more. See, Jewish people were the ultimate skeptics in the day. They had the ultimate worldview that screened out a person ever becoming, excuse me, God ever becoming a person. Well, it was blasphemy from them. For them. And second, they didn't believe a Jewish, any person, would rise in the middle of history. See, everything in their worldview screened this out, said it was impossible a priori. But their worldview, their skepticism, their opinion changed when they encountered a fact. I can promise you, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was way more offended by Christianity than anyone you've ever met. But he had the guts and the intellectual integrity to change what he believed when the evidence came in. First, the resurrection was preached as fact. But second, it was also preached as fulfillment. It was preached not only as the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, but as the fulfillment of the longing of every human heart. French philosopher, Luke Ferry, sure you've all read his book, A Brief History of Thought. He asked the question, asked the question, how did Christianity overwhelm Greek philosophy? He said, think about it, because Greek philosophy was still dominant in that day. They had Socrates, right? Plato, Aristotle, they were brilliant. So thoughtful, they're still brilliant. And yet, they were all overturned and left in the dust by Christianity, Christian philosophy. He asked, how could that have even happened? He said there had to have been a reason for that. And the answer he gives, though he's a skeptic, is this. He says, it was the resurrection. He said it was the preaching of the resurrection that changed the Roman Empire. You ask, well, how? If you've ever read uh, Edgar Allan Poe's famous poem, the raven. You may remember the famous little line in it, right? There's this, in the poem, there's this big black raven that flies into a man's room, and that man is lamenting the great loss of his life. It's a woman named Lenore, 10 points extra if you knew that. And the raven flies in the room and perches on a statue of, guess what? It's the Greek goddess of wisdom, Athena. And as the man is recounting his loss, his pain in life, the raven only says what? Nevermore, Never more. When the man asks about his friends about hope for the future, the raven only answers, "Nevermore." When the man asks about getting together with Lenore, the raven only answers, "Nevermore." When the man asks, "Will we at least be united in heaven and our future?" the raven only says, "Nevermore." And the man falls into despair and into darkness. See, all modern philosophy could give him, to the longing of his heart and future hope was a nevermore, all will be lost, all will be forgotten, all will be nevermore, you say well that's not very encouraging, you know, it's not but Poe didn't write that or anything else he wrote for that matter to be encouraging, he wrote it to illustrate the despair the human heart feels when it believes that this life is all it's ever going to have. And what the early church preached and what overwhelmed Greek philosophy was what the resurrection meant that now nevermore was not ultimately true. Nevermore didn't have the last word, but forevermore was ultimately true. That because Jesus was raised from the dead, that means there is life beyond the grave, that good does will triumph over evil. All the sad things will come untrue, that we will be united with the very source of life forevermore. More. See. The impossibly, yeah. Impossibly. Against all odds, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that fact gives our hearts the fulfillment Pose Raven really points us to. Number one, they preached an impossibility. Number two, there's also diversity, diversity in this church. And if you're saying, Man, we're hearing a lot about this. In this series, yes, you are, but do you know why? It's because the book itself, the writer Luke himself brings it up a lot and it will be doing a disservice to the text to not emphasize what he seeks to make consistently plain to the people of God for all ages. Chapter 13, Luke gives us a sneak peek into the engine room, the boiler room, the leadership team, this church in Antioch and he lists some names for you he says here's who leads the church he says there was Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan who had been brought up with hair of the Tetrarch, and Saul. So here we have Barnabas not from Israel actually he was from the island of Cyprus a long way away there was Simeon called Niger which meant literally black what they called him. Lucius, a Greek man from Cyrene. There was Manan who grew up as a rich and wealthy, privileged Greek alongside Herod the Tetrarch. And then there was Saul, the Jewish lawyer Pharisee. There were Jews, right? Greeks, Romans, wealthy, African, educated. The point was you had here the most diverse leadership team the world had ever seen and the reason you're being told this name by name country by country skin color by skin color is that you so that you won't miss its significance this all sort of washes over us in our day because we're not from there we don't know these places and stuff but to readers in Luke day in Luke's day by listing all of these these readers would have in that day had their draws excuse me draws jaw well that draws too jaws <laughs> dropped on the floor sorry that's going on in the podcast right there. You were all here. Jaws drop. It's half as live. It's possible that happened too, right? Uh, that's a good one. This, of course, simply didn't happen, and that's the point. And Let me just take one more moment, if I could, to show you how significant this is. Um, actually, I read a, a church planning book recently that said, if you'll notice, when you read the book of Acts, when it comes to the founding of every church, there's always some sort of miraculous event. That kickstarted the church. What's called a power encounter. There's the the healing right of the, of the lame man in Jerusalem, Acts three. That that kickstarts the church there in Lystra. There's the healing of another lame man, and if you know the story, it's kind of hilarious. The Roman people go nuts. They start calling Paul and Barnabas, you know, Zeus and Hermes. Start bringing them bulls to sacrifice to them. But the point is, a church is birthed around that miracle. Uh, and for the church in Macedonia, Paul had a supernatural vision in Philippi. Paul and Silas are in prison, but they didn't earthquake brings them out. Uh, in Thessalonica, Berea, there are protests. There are riots. There's always some sort of epic clash with demonic powers in these cities. See, every church in every city has what's called a historical moment to it. Something supernatural the church could point to to validate it as having been brought into the world by the will of God. Every church, it would appear, except for this one where's the miracle the writers ask where's the miracle well ha-ha. can you now see what Luke is trying to show you here in this church the undeniable miracle of the church in Antioch was its racial and cultural and socioeconomic diversity now, the Jews didn't mix the races but the Christians did Romans didn't mix the classes, but the Christians did. Why is this such a miracle? Well, it's because, as Martin Luther said years later, the human heart is incurvitous, say it's turned in on itself. Individuals, groups tend to keep to themselves those just like themselves. But the miracle of the church in Antioch, and I submit to you, the miracle of this church, Mosaic, or what points people to the evidence of a power greater than ourselves is... A racial, cultural, socioeconomic diversity. See, Luke is telling you here, this is the mark of a church that produces little Christs. Number three, spirituality. Spirituality, impossibility, diversity, spirituality. And what I mean by that word is this. The disciples in Antioch were committed to being disciples. Now, Here's what that means. That means that the disciples were not committed to being merely churchgoers, spiritual tire kickers, Sunday dropper inners, when work or kids or vacation or kids sports didn't get in the way. Look at what their lives looked like, four ways they expressed They're committed discipleship. First, they learned the Bible. Learned the Bible. Just Paul, excuse me, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. This is saying the people of Jesus are committed to being taught the Bible. And to learning the Bible for themselves. Do you know why? Well, a theologian friend of mine just did a study recently on, uh, uh, looking at 2,000 years of church history. And do you know what was the single greatest predictor of whether or not a church would last multiple generations? he found it was the gospel, the word of God, rightly preached. See, there are many other factors besides that that enable a church to to hang in there and survive and grow. But if, that, that is the primary reason. Now, if that is true for the heart of the church, of the fact being that the word of God in a church's life is the number one determinant of its spiritual vitality, what about for you? What about for your own life? What do you think might be the key factor in determining whether or not you thrive spiritually? If you're here today and you're thriving spiritually, I can guarantee you it's because you are committed to being taught and to learning the Bible for yourself. And if you're floundering, flopping, gasping spiritually, it's likely because your commitment to the word of God in your life has waned. See, they learned the Bible, too. They expressed the gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It says, now, in the church at Antioch, there were what? Prophets and teachers. See, we like to sort of condense this today to pastors, um, you know, teachers, maybe evangelists. But look at this. They had, of course, apostles there, Saul, prophets, Agabus, it says. In just a few verses, Antioch is shown to be a church that loves the ministry of the Holy Spirit Prophets were welcome. Holy Spirit ministry happened. Third, their way they expressed their discipleship. They denied the self. Oh, it says while they were worshiping the Lord and what, gorging themselves, no fasting. The Holy Spirit said, "Let me ask you: When did these people hear something life changing? Hmm? When did the Holy Spirit?" Speak, oh, it was when they were worshiping and fasting. If you want to hear something you've never heard before, you may just have to do something you've never done before. Do you want to hear God's voice? Maybe it's time to turn down, maybe tune out some other voices in your life. See, deny the self, fast. It changed this church. It'll change your life fourth way they express their discipleship they served the world Served the world now you only see sort of one way this happened in this passage and we'll get to that next but if you read throughout Acts you'll see that in Antioch there was always this constant global missionary activity there were always people coming through always churches being planted missionaries coming home being sent out it was an apostolic center that blessed the world. It wasn't just, catch this, by contrast, it wasn't just a local church in isolation, happy to be just a local church, not connected to the rest of the world, only focusing on its own problems, taking care of its own people. It was connected with the nations, had a vision to touch the world, and so do we. It's one reason we're a part of a global spiritual family called, guess what, Every Nation. I wonder what that's about. All right. First three, impossibility, diversity, spirituality. Fourth mark of a church that produces little Christ is this. We'll call it generosity. Generosity. And uh, my favorite Sunday of the year, since you're asking, uh, is the first, not Easter actually, it's the first Sunday. In November, something we call Live Big Sunday. And if you've ever been here for that, you know it's the greatest thing we do. If you're you're new here, you ought to come just for that. Mark your calendar first Sunday in November, and we raise as much money as we can in one day for a local nonprofit, usually one that works with widows or orphans in some way. And we we raise the money. We don't even tell the people it's coming. We just show up with a check and try to make it the best day they've had all year. And we launched this about four years ago. In the first year, we raised and gave away $15,000. Second year, it was $18,000. Two years ago, it was $25,000. And last November, it was $33,000. We gave away to Starry, an organization up in Round Rock that works with foster care support ministries, and this year I hope we go way over $40,000, could you imagine? But we, we raise the money on one day, and then we give 100% of it, stays away, not one penny stays here, and I shamelessly, every year, insist on going along to hand the check to the organization, not because I want to thank you. I don't care if we get one. If it does isn't going to stop us, if we get a thank you or we don't get a thank you. Not for that. I don't want to be on camera or hand them the check myself. I make somebody else do that. Thank you. I just shamelessly insist on going along because I want to be there to experience the joy The joy of giving away the single largest offering we receive all year. I get to live out with you up front, up close, personal, in my face, what Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. He's saying literally, you'll be happier when you give. Then when you receive, listen, that day, what's better for Easter? Better for me than Easter or Christmas. I get to give. See, most of us as Americans, we receive so much compared with the rest of the world. Maybe not all of you, but I dare say most of us in this room are in that bucket today. And it's nice, isn't it, to receive gifts. Nice to receive. My wife is saying amen on the front row. Yes, <laughs> nice to receive gifts. hint. Hint. But do you know, except for you, love, what makes you happier than receiving? Jesus says it's giving. It's giving for all of us. And look at this church in Antioch. Because when a famine, it says, hit Israel, global famine, these Christians 300 miles away, might as well have been halfway around the world, took up a massive offering for them. Look what it says. It says, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help. For the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Now, this offering was so inspirational that we get to read later on in the other epistles, other churches were inspired to give. It says they begged to be able, they wanted to get in on the giving while the giving was good. And that overflow of generosity began right here in Antioch. And one church's story and I read asked, Do you want to know where the idea of international aid came from? Where the idea of international relief came from? Right here from the Christians in Antioch. See, the defining characteristic of these first century Christians was not their theology because that was totally weird to the Romans. Where's your God? He's not in a temple. They pulled back the curtain. There's no God they can see there. No, their defining characteristic was their generosity. They were poor, but they gave, had little, but gave much again and again and again. They didn't receive compassion or favor from the Roman government, which excluded them and consistently created laws to exclude them and put them on the margins of society. But nothing could stop their giving. Why, oh, because they followed the teachings of Jesus who said, freely you've received. Freely give. Let me ask you is freely giving a mark of your life or is tightly clutching a more accurate description. Listen, I hope that financial, financial, (coughs) generosity is a part of your life, but I also hope you have a generosity of spirit that includes, yes, your finances as a starting point, but that moves out into all the spokes of your life. I hope you're generous with your time here your energy here, your ideas here, your leadership here, your presence here, your prayers here. If you consider Mosaic to be your home, let me ask you, what if everyone gave the way you give? Hmm? What would it be like? Is it better to be part of an environment where people freely give or are constantly watching their back to make sure no one takes advantage of them? Is it more blessed to give something than to keep it? Oh, Jesus says it's more blessed to give it. The church in Antioch preached an impossibility model diversity, spirituality, and generosity. And those are all amazing. And I hope you think they're amazing, because they are. But I think there's one more thing here that was more or less the glue that held all these things together. There's one more thing in this passage we can't overlook it's the, the defining characteristic of what made this church be able to look like little christ what was it number five there's a mystery here mystery the defining characteristic that made this church what it was was a certain kind of mysterious ministry that the apostle barnabas brought into the church and the writer luke puts it like this it says when he barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of god had done he was glad and it says what He encouraged them. In other words, what was his ministry? Oh, not teaching, not alone, though he did that, or preaching, but Barnabas brought into the church at Antioch a mystery. It was the ministry of encouragement. Now, why is it a mystery? Well, it's a mystery because, from all we can tell, this ministry wasn't really a ministry, but it's what made all the other ministries go. This ministry was like, nitrous oxide in the church's engine and the church's DNA it turbocharged everything else because look what happened when Barnabas showed up and he began to encourage the church verse 24 tells you it says and what a great number of people were brought to the Lord see encouragement isn't evangelism oh but it makes evangelism go further encouragement isn't teaching but it makes the teaching better encouragement isn't financial giving but it causes people to be more generous encouragement isn't diversity but it keeps diverse people together see strictly speaking it's not quite its own ministry because there's no church i know that has like a professional you know minister of encouragement on staff who knows well maybe the first that might be great but encouragement's like a spice you know you don't eat it by itself it just goes on it flavors everything else it makes everything taste better and that's what Barnabas brought to this church he made everything go further faster his encouragement made everyone stronger and better and yes well what is this kind of encouragement what does it look like well let's take a look At the word itself, because if you've got a different translation than this, you'll see this word's actually translated a number of different ways, which means you can't quite get it all into one word box. And the word here for encouragement in the Greek is the Greek word parakaleo. And there are two words here that are combining to make one word. The first word was, is excuse me is para, which means near, alongside. And there's kaleo, which means to call, to call, to point, to exhort. And these two words make up something new altogether—a brand new combination, a new ministry. Which is why the word is translated ultimately encouragement. Or exhortation, these seemingly two different things. See, perikaleo is not quite encouragement alone, nor is it exhortation alone. No, It's not just coming near to someone, nor is it just telling someone the way things ought to be, right? It's doing both. It's what the New Testament calls speaking the truth, what? In love. See, it's having a heart to be near someone, with someone, alongside one, to be for someone, and then pointing out the direction that person ought to go, calling them up to greater and greater levels of maturity and faith. Look at how the Message Bible puts what Barnabas did. I like this. It says, he threw himself in with them, got behind them, urging them to stay with it the rest of their lives. Do you know how desperately we need this kind of ministry in our church? How desperately you need this kind of ministry in your life? Hebrews 3 says, this is how badly you need it. A church needs it. It says, encourage, exhort. Do parakaleo, Hebrews 3 says, when? How often? Daily. Daily encourage one another. Lest you be hardened because you get tricked by sin. Later on, a few chapters later, Hebrews 13 goes on to say it again. He said, do perikaleo so you don't forsake, guess what, meeting with your church, being in the family of God. What's he saying? He's saying the greatest temptation, the the end result, the way you get tricked by the enemy, the end result of any and every temptation, deception the enemy brings into your life is just to make you quit, just to make you quit, quit on God. Quit on your church. Quit on your family. Quit on your spiritual family. Forsake being a part of where God's put you. See, the writer of Hebrews knows what Barnabas knows, that you, that we all face daily the temptation of some kind to quit on something God simply called us to. I talked with a friend of mine uh, this week. He's a a pastor in another nation, other side of the world. And I had heard he was having a hard time. So I picked up the phone and I I called him. Thank you, you know, for uh, cell phone numbers being in whatever uh, U.S. area codes overseas. And uh, he was an American. He is an American who moved his wife, family overseas. And another nation, he's there planning a church. And overseas, especially in certain countries which haven't historically um, been reached by the gospel where the gospel is now making inroads there's quite a bit of oppositions and they're all kind of cults that spring up and take people away you just read anything about what's happening in China it's a phenomenon there these cults they twist some truths they deceive people and this happened to a young couple in his church one of his main leader couples and over a two-year period though he didn't know it this cult leader began behind the scenes to steal their hearts away turn their hearts away saying things that Hebrews warns you against he began to say you don't really need to be a part of a church and be a part of that you don't really need to go there you should leave where you are come out onto my property, he said. And he said, hey, can you please sign something that swears you to secrecy about what I teach you? And these people left. And it was the first person who had come to Christ in that church plant. They were on staff there, and now the church is suffering. And when I called my friend, guess what is going on? When I called him, guess what he's doing? He was there in a coffee shop discipling two more young men. But I could tell he's having a hard time, and not because i was such a genius or because I'm even such a good friend, but mostly because I knew I was gonna be preaching on this this Sunday. I said, well, let's see how this Paracaleo stuff works. I said to him, well, let me tell you something. I said, let me tell you something. Your church is gonna make it and you are going to make it and your church is going to thrive and it's going to reach people and all this is is just a clarifying moment that's going to make who you are clear and what you stand for that much clearer and i love you and i believe in you and you are not going to quit and sometimes being a christian stinks and sometimes being a christian stinks because you got to be the bigger person i am proud to be your friend and he got. Up, he had to leave his little meeting there and he got, went outside and began to get emotional right there on the phone. He said, thanks, I needed that. Now, that's pericaleo, pericaleo. We need this, I need this, you need this. Your children need this from your parents. The person serving your child today and MKids kids needs this, our staff needs this, our deacons need this, our elders need this. The ministry of encouragement, this is showing us, is what makes a church go. It's the oxygen... That gives life to new life. Ask, well, how do we get it? How do we get it? Well, the description of Barnabas gives us a clue. It says he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Full of who? The Holy Spirit. Now, do you know what jesus christ on the night he was betrayed in the upper room when he was trying to console his disciples who were full of grief and pain because they knew he was leaving them what he said he would give them oh john 14 he said to them i am sending you he says look at this another advocate to be with you always. Listen, when he says advocate, the word in the Greek there is literally another paraclete, another paraclete. He's taking the verb, parakaleo, making a noun out of it. He's saying I'm going to send you another encourager, another comforter, another truth teller, and he is going to remind you of me, which is why Jesus calls the Holy Spirit not the paraclete, not the advocate, but another advocate. You say, another? Oh, that's right, because Jesus is our first paraclete, our first advocate, our first defense attorney, first line of defense against the enemy of our hearts and discouragement and the temptation to quit. See, Acts 11 is showing us that Barnabas' heart was full of the love of Jesus for him, and he could give it away. Did you know that Barnabas wasn't really this man's name? Hmm? His real name was Joseph, a fine name, by the way, especially if it's yours. But Joseph was so full of the Holy Spirit, so full of the love of Jesus, that people nicknamed him what we call him today, Barnabas, literally, The encourager's son. The encourager's son. They nicknamed him after Jesus. They said, you encourage us so much. You exhort us so much. You paracaleo us so much. You inspire us so much. You won't let us quit so much that when we're around you, we feel like we're around Jesus himself, the encourager. And we're gonna call you the encourager's son. (sighs) See, when you, when you, like Barnabas, when you remember, when you remember, you have an advocate who loves you, and who has sent you another advocate, another encourager in your heart. You can begin to weigh, begin to give away the overflow of that love. Barnabas was full of overflowing with the love of God and gave it away. His church was supercharged, put on steroids, man. Human growth hormone, it grew like crazy. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. What if we did that for one another here? What if before you left today, you did that for someone? What if when you got home today, you just picked up the phone? And did that for someone. If you encouraged someone. Oh guess what might happen. I hope it's what happened there. That many many. Turned to the Lord.